Few men have impacted history as much as John Wesley. Born 1703 into an Anglican home, Father Samuel was a pastor. Mother Susanna taught the Bible to her 19 children. And Wesley attended the finest school, Oxford University, where he proved to be incredibly diligent in his religious practices. In fact, he joined a society knowing, known as the Holy Club. And although Wesley was not a Christian at the time, he vowed to lead a godly life, to pray daily, to read his Greek New Testament, to visit people in prison, and to spend at least three hours every day studying the Scriptures. By age 25, he was ordained as a pastor in the Church of England. Then age 32, he became a missionary to the American Indians, so he jumps on a ship and he sails across the ocean to take the gospel to the United States. Again, he's still not a Christian. Nonetheless, chaplain of the entire boat when a vicious storm comes along and Wesley is absolutely terrified for his life. But there's this group of Moravian Christians who are singing hymns, praising God, and remaining of good courage throughout the entire event. So his actions, Wesley's actions, demonstrate his lack of faith, as does his missionary experience, which is a total disaster. So he returns to England, and he writes in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but who shall convert me? In Wesley's words, I am convinced of my own unbelief that, yes, I am a very religious man, but I lack the faith needed whereby I could possibly be saved. But all that changed. May 24, 1738, Wesley, age 35, woke and opened his Bible to Mark chapter 12, which says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. So right there in that moment, that verse summarized his entire life because he was outwardly impressive. He was holy. He was righteous and good, prayed, studied, ordained to the ministry, and even served as a missionary. But he's not a Christian. So he's not far from the kingdom of God, but he's clearly not in the kingdom of God. And those are two radically different things. And I don't want that to be true of you this morning. To simply be near the kingdom, but not in the kingdom. To know a lot about Jesus, but not know Jesus in a saving way, which empowers you to love, to serve, to sacrifice, and to obey God's commands, walking in obedience, which is what you need, a transformed life in order to enter the kingdom of God and to go to heaven when you die. So a critical passage for us to understand this morning, to make sure that we're not hypocrites, impressive on the outside, but full of dead man's bones on the inside. So if you would, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 7. It's on page 812 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. Title of my sermon this morning, Only Two options. As you're turning, let me remind you where we're at in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. 
So you have to understand the only way to have a righteousness that, that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees is if you ask, seek, and knock that God would be gracious to you, that you might put your faith in the Lord Jesus and his righteousness might become your righteousness. But when that happens, when you put your faith in Christ, you're given the gift of the Spirit and your life is going to change. It has to change. It must change. So as we close out the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is going to highlight the only two options that we have. You see them right there on your outline. Two paths, two trees, two claims, and two houses. Only two options. It's either faith, repentance, obedience, and eternal life, or it's rejection, refusal, and deciding there's a way that seems right to me, but its end is the way of destruction. Those are the only two options. So that's where we're going this morning. Let's start with number one, two paths, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, the metaphor is pretty straightforward. Jesus paints a picture of two paths, two roads. The first is broad, and its gate is wide, so it accommodates a ton of people, the many. And although it's well-traveled, its end is the way of destruction, whereas the other path is narrow. So it's confined, it's constricted, and it's difficult, and relatively few find it. But that path leads to life. That path leads to the kingdom of God. So that's A, the two paths explained. Now let's talk about B, the two paths applied. So just some simple but straightforward deductions drawn from the picture that Jesus gives here in verses 13 and 14. First, Jesus seems to be saying that God's way is not popular. Which, by the way, all the statistics confirm I mean, Connecticut is the seventh least religious state in the country. Hartford is the third least Bible-minded city. And to the best of my knowledge, less than 4% of the population attend a religious service on any given Sunday in the state of Connecticut. Why is that? Well, I would suggest it's because the way is hard that leads to life. Owning your sin is hard. Being poor in spirit is hard. Prayer is hard. Righteousness is hard. Having God-centered priorities in all that you do is hard. In fact, those things are not even possible apart from the grace of God. In addition, the gate is narrow that leads to life. What does that mean? It means there's no room for a person to set their own standard of what is right and wrong. There's no room to set your goals contrary to God's goals. And no room to set your affections on things or people, or experiences, or relationships that are contrary to the will of God. Just like Jesus has been saying all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Now, does that mean that the narrow gate and the hard way is not encouraging? Not at all. There is no greater joy than personally knowing God through faith in Christ, than having your sins forgiven, 
than doing what is right and living a life without guilt or shame and with the ability to actually say no to sin and to say yes to righteousness. Not in just a one-hit wonder kind of way, but in a progressive, victorious, triumphal, over-temptation kind of way. See, the truth is, there's nothing better than that in all the world. It's, it's wonderful. It's glorious. And yet, despite the gospel being the greatest news ever proclaimed, it's obvious, number one, God's way is not popular. Which means you'll never discover it by simply appealing to popular opinion. Instead, the vast majority of people, according to Jesus, are joyfully walking on the broad road that leads to death and destruction, and they're happy about it. Therefore, number two, God's way has to be chosen. It's not something that's just going to happen to you. Let go and let God. And it's certainly not being pushed on you by popular opinion. So it has to be a choice that you make to take the narrow gate and to walk the path that at times is hard and lonely, difficult and discouraging and clearly contrary to popular opinion. You know, I'm reminded of the book of Joshua. If you know the story, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, Moses dies and he hands over the leadership position to Joshua. Joshua leads the people. And as his own death approaches, he calls all the people together. Leadership is not easy, and it's not been an easy ride. So he calls the people together, and he challenges them to make a choice. Joshua 24, verse 14, Joshua says, Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him with sincerity and faithfulness. That's, that's the command. Serve the Lord with sincerity and with faithfulness. And he says, verse 15, if it's an evil thing for you to do to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers or the gods of the regions or the gods of the Amorites or the gods of popular opinion. Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I would suggest Joshua's day and age and culture is really no different than ours. Because there's absolutely no shortage of gods to serve, including money and materialism, comfort and ease, sex and power. What does that mean? It means you're going to have to choose this day whom you will serve. And you will have to keep on choosing this day who you will serve. Or to use Jesus' metaphor, which path are you going to choose? Which brings us to number three, that God's way leads to eternal life. So be clear, the two paths are not an end unto themselves. The two paths are just the beginning. So you walk through the gate, you get on the path, and then walk that path for the rest of your life. Why is that? Well, because the one leads to death and destruction, and the other leads to life and to the kingdom of God. Now, wouldn't you think that imagery would seal the deal? Meaning, who in the world would choose a path 
when they know that its end is destruction? Who would choose to drive on a road when they know that the bridge is out? You think it would be obvious. Yet, spiritually speaking, people do this every day. You know, the great tragedy is that otherwise reasonable people become so enamored, so captured, so content with the popularity of the wide gate, and I would suggest the easy path. Boy, this road is delightful. I'm just going to ignore the end. So they take little thought of the consequences of their actions, and they start lying to themselves, and they start arguing that they can't possibly be wrong since so many are traveling right there beside them. And certainly, God would not permit the destruction of so many. So they convince themselves there must be many ways to God, and Christianity is really just one of them. Oh, let me be crystal clear this morning. There is only one way to God. And that's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the Bible alone, all to the glory of God alone. Just like Jesus says, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So be clear, there's only two paths. There's the easy path that absolutely seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death and destruction. And there's the hard path, the path of humility, the path of owning your sin, the path of repentance, the path of faith in Christ, the path of serving and sacrifice that leads to life. So here's the question. How do we know which path we're on? That's a great question. And here's the answer. You will know by your fruit. Number one, two paths. Number two, two trees. Follow along as I read verses 15 to 20. Jesus says, Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down. And thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruit. Verse 15, absolutely critical to understanding what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, beware of false prophets. Beware of false teachers who come to you, to the people of God, in sheep's clothing. So they come to you under the guise or the premise of being true believers in Christ. But inwardly are ravenous Wolves. So inwardly, they're not true believers at all. They're unbelievers who are teaching that which is false and are therefore destroying the church from within. 
Because that's what wolves do to sheep. They kill them. They destroy them. They eat the sheep for dinner. And it's super helpful to be clear on that point because, A, the reality of false teachers is a terrifying thing, but it is not a new thing. In fact, towards the end of Paul's ministry, he warns the Ephesian elders, saying to them, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. He says, speaking to the elders, that even from among your own number, Men will rise up and will distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. What should we do, according to Paul? Paul says, be on your guard. Peter says the same thing, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. But there were false teachers among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. And yet, Peter says, many will follow their shameful ways. Think about the broad path that leads to destruction. Many will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth to disrepute, to disgrace. Peter says, verse 3, beware, for their condemnation is not idle and their destruction is not asleep, meaning it's certain, it's sure, it's going to happen, it's just a matter of time. That's A, the reality of false teachers. Now let's consider B, the recognition of false teachers. Jesus tells us exactly how to identify them, doesn't he? He says, verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruit. Are, grape tr- are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Obviously not. So every healthy tree bears good fruit and every bad tree bears bad fruit, meaning a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Verse 20, thus you will recognize them by their fruit. Now, is Jesus talking about trees? No. He's talking about people. And specifically, he's talking about people's lives. So he's talking about whether your life matches up with the things that he's been preaching on here in the Sermon on the Mount. Why is that? Well, because there's an obvious connection, isn't there? For what a person truly believes will ultimately be seen in the way they live their life. In other words, right thinking always leads to right living, and wrong thinking always ultimately leads to wicked living. There's just no way to hide it indefinitely. And here's the scary part. The consequences are eternal. Verse 19, Jesus says, And every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So according to the Bible, is the consistent pattern of your life good or evil? The pattern of your life, how would it be demonstrated, declared? Is it good or is it evil? Galatians 5 tells us the works of the flesh, the fruit of your life is evident, obvious. You can see it. Paul says and highlights sexual immorality, 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul says, I warn you. He says, beware. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit also evident and obvious, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul says against such things, there is no law, meaning there is no condemnation, there is no death and destruction, there is no hell. But instead, life in the kingdom of God. So here's the question. If you evaluate your own life, where do you think you're at? Meaning, is the fruit in your life sufficient to confirm the profession of your faith? Because false teachers are no different than false believers, right? So you can easily sit there this morning and say, there's not a doubt in my mind that I've walked through the narrow gate and I'm on the hard road that leads to eternal life. Here's the problem. That's super easy to say. But it is a lot harder to do. So the question remains, does your life actually back up your profession? Do your actions confirm that your faith is really in the Lord Jesus? I appeal to you to not be afraid to ask yourself the hard questions. Do not be afraid to take an honest look at your life, which, by the way, is an absolutely biblical thing to do. 2 Corinthians 13, Paul says to the church, he says to the church in Corinth, examine yourselves for what reason? to see whether or not you're actually in the faith. Paul says, test yourselves. Or do you not realize this glorious truth that Jesus Christ is really in you unless you fail the test? What's the test? It's the fruit test. Let me just say one other thing before we move on. You might be there sitting, you might be there sitting and thinking, I don't really like where he's going with this. It doesn't seem very nice to me. Not very kind. I don't think it's, it's very considerate of him to question my faith or to suggest in any way that I'm not a true believer. Well, two thoughts that I'd have for you in response. Number one, I'm not suggesting that you are an unbeliever. I'm suggesting you examine the fruit in your life to see if there's enough evidence to confirm that you have the root of salvation and true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because true faith always results in a transformed life. So if there's no fruit in your life, then there's no root of salvation. But if there is fruit in your life, then there is the root of salvation, then there's much reason to rejoice and praise God. Second thing I would say is that I would argue this is the kindest, most loving, most 
caring, most Christ-like thing that I could ever say to you. And why is that? Because you still have time to repent. As I said, if the fruit confirms the root, praise God. He's doing a good work in your life. You should rejoice in that. You should be grateful to examine your life and see the good work that God is already doing. But if you examine your life and there's no fruit, then you need to be warned and you need to repent while you still have time. Now make the connection to what Jesus is saying. Because those who enter through the narrow gate and walk the hard road will bear good fruit in keeping with godly sorrow and true repentance, and they will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Whereas those who enter through the broad gate and walk the easy road will bear bad fruit, worldly fruit, in keeping with earthly sorrow and will hear, away from me, I never knew you. In fact, just look at what Jesus says next. Two paths, two trees, now number three, two claims. Look at what Jesus says in verse 21. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. On that day, many will say, many. Boy, that reminds you of the broad road, doesn't it? Many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Obviously, there's two claims being highlighted here. You might say that's not obvious to me at all. Sure seems like Jesus is focusing on one kind of person. That's true. He is focusing on, A, the reality of false professions. But notice what Jesus says in verse 21. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, which means there are people who will say to him, Lord, Lord, who will enter the kingdom of heaven. And who are those people exactly? Well, he tells us it's those who do the will of God. Nonetheless, this is a terrifying verse because you could easily argue these people have a pretty impressive spiritual resume. I mean, verse 22 says they prophesied in Jesus' name, they cast out demons in Jesus' name, and they've done many mighty works in Jesus' name. My goodness, how many of us could say that? I've certainly never cast out demons in Jesus' day. Don't cast out demons in my day. They've got all these seemingly great things on their resume. But here's the problem. None of them actually match the job description. What's the job description? It's doing the will of God which is summarized as loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Let me just say, sometimes, at times, there's people who do all sorts of things in Jesus' name who are actually unbelievers. But they get caught somewhere along the way in this life. For example, Acts chapter 19, seven sons of Sceva 
who are itinerant exorcists. So they see what the apostle's doing, what the apostle Paul is doing by the power of the Spirit, right? He's casting out demons, and they want a little bit of that. He's casting out demons in Jesus' name, so they start doing that in Jesus' name. But they get busted for it. So at times, false professions of faith are exposed in this life. Titus 1.16, very helpful. Paul says they profess to know God, but by their deeds, by their works, by the fruit in their life, they deny him. Paul says they are detestable, they are disobedient, and they are unfit for any good work. So at times, false professions get exposed in this life. But other times they get exposed in death. That's the picture we're being given here. Here's the question. What then is the essential requirement needed to make sure that we're true believers, that we're genuine disciples of Christ, so that this does not happen to us when we die? Well, Jesus already told us. Verse 21, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven, that one will enter the kingdom of of heaven. So what's the requirement of true faith and genuine repentance? It's obedience. It's obedience to the word of God. Specifically, what does obedience look like? It looks like love. It looks like love for God the Father, and it looks like love for the people of God. It looks like love because love is righteousness in action, both in your love for God and in your love for for others. And love is the fulfillment of the law. Paul makes that crystal clear. Romans chapter 13, he says, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor which is why love is the fulfillment of the law. So true love for God, true love for others, that gets played out in real and practical ways. That's the obedience that Jesus is looking for, which is radically different than the situation here because this is just religiosity. This is man's efforts to look spiritually impressive but not a true love for God, not a true love for others, and therefore not true obedience. But that means that this person is deceived, aren't they? Thinking there's something that they're not. So that's the real question, isn't it? How do we make sure that we're not spiritually deceived? Well, I would suggest there's a couple of ways that we can deceive ourselves and therefore have to protect against. For example, number one, we can enjoy some sort of wonderful spiritual experience at some point in the past and then just hold on to that experience and live in the glory of that event in the future. 
without any real ongoing growth or practical obedience and somehow think that's okay. That's not okay. Because if you're truly come to faith in Christ, then you'll continue to walk the hard road. You'll continue to bear fruit. You'll continue to put sin to death. You'll continue to obey God's law. You'll continue to submit to his commandments. So true faith is not a singular spiritual experience. It's not even a wonderful season of life. But it's an ongoing, slow, faithful obedience all in the same direction. So that's number one being deceived into coasting along on the memory of some past spiritual experience. Number two, second form of deception is convincing ourselves that talking about spiritual things is the same thing as doing spiritual things. You know, I absolutely love The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. actually started listening to it while I go for a run. The reason I do that is because I hate running, but I love the Pilgrim's Progress. So my goal when I start running, first half mile is the worst, right? But when I start running, I put on Pilgrim's Progress and I start running and I start being zoomed in onto the Pilgrim's Progress, which I love and I forget that I'm running. It's a great trick. Works generally pretty well. Till I hit three miles, then I'm like, I know I ran three miles. It's time to stop. Nonetheless, Pilgrim's Progress, I love the Pilgrim's Progress because it's so relevant and it's so applicable for the Christian life with all the different kinds of people that Christian encounters. And he has these great conversations with him, right? Worldly wise man, pliable, evangelist, interpreter, and Mr. Legality in the town of morality. But do you remember talkative? Talkative interacts with Christian and faithful as they make their way from the city of destruction all the way to the celestial city. Let me tell you, it's a fantastic conversation. But as you'd expect, talkative is all talk, and he's no action. So faithful confronts him on it by asking, how exactly is the saving grace of God confirmed in a believer's life? And of course, Talkative says it's a verbal outcry against sin and it's a head knowledge of the gospel. So he focuses on speech and theology, which are obviously great things, but faithful clarifies. And he says it's not just words and knowledge, but it's action and holiness. So holiness in your heart. Holiness in your family, holiness in your speech, and holiness with real people in this world. And then Faithful says this, it's not by talk alone, as a hypocrite or a talkative person might do, but it's by a practical obedience in faith and love to the power of the word. Now, let me be clear. I am not arguing for a works-based righteousness. And I'm not arguing for the idea that you have to do something in order to earn your way into heaven. No person enters the kingdom because of their own obedience. But it's equally true that no person enters the kingdom of God who is not obedient. People are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But it's equally true that God's grace in a person's life inevitably results 
in obedience. According to D.A. Carson, any other view of grace is cheap grace. And it turns into something that is unrecognizable. Carson says, cheap grace preaches forgiveness without repentance, membership without discipline, discipleship without obedience, blessing without persecution, joy without righteousness, and faith without obedience. He concludes, never in the history of the church has there ever been a generation with so many nominal Christians, Christians in name only, and so few real ones, meaning obedient ones. So let me ask, is that you this morning? Is your Christianity in talk only and not in action, not in obedience? Is it the spiritual experience of yesterday that you're holding on to? Or is there real, tangible, practical, evident and obvious evidence that you're on the road that leads to life, that you're bearing fruit in keeping with repentance, that your life is characterized by a growing submission to the Word of God. So not just talk, but action. A slow, faithful obedience, all in the same direction. Where are you at this morning? Two paths, two trees, two claims. Not everyone who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who actually do the will of God. So then how should we respond? Well, we should be those who are not just hearers of the word, but those who are doers of the word. Look at what Jesus says next, verse 24, number four, two houses. Jesus says, verse 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. So here's your options again, only two options. You can either be a person who hears, believes, and obeys or you can be a person who hears, rejects, and refuses to do anything different than what you've done in the past. Those are your only two options. If you picture these houses in your mind's eye, you start recognizing very quickly, according to these verses, that there's not a single difference in their outward appearance, is there? They're both clean and attractive, nicely painted, greed grass, probably have two-car garage. But be clear, the outward appearance is identical. The only difference is, A, 
the two foundations. One house is built on the solid rock and the other house is built on the sand. But those two foundations make all the difference in the world, don't they? Because both houses endure the exact same difficulties in life. The same trials and tribulations, pain and suffering, loss and loneliness. That's why Jesus says the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on those houses. And yet only a house built on the solid rock stands. Whereas the other house built on the sand falls. And oh, so great was its fall. Now we could easily focus on the two foundations and zero in on how the Lord Jesus Christ is the rock of our salvation. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Which is absolutely true. But the problem is these verses are not actually focused on the two foundations. They're focused on the two builders. Look again at verse 24. Jesus says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a man who builds his house on the rock. Verse 26, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house on the sand. So not just two foundations, but two builders. And what is the difference between the two builders? Obedience and disobedience. Is everybody clear on that? You have two foundations, but it's the builders that we're focusing on. Are they obedient? They hear the word of God and build like this? Or do they hear the word of God and are disobedient and build like that? What highlights the difference? It's the storm. So the storm comes. Rain falls, flood rises, and the winds blow and beat on those homes, both homes, all at the same time. The only one that stands is the house that is built by the man who hears the word of God and obeys it and walks through the narrow gate and continues to hear the word of God and obeys it and bears fruit in their life and keeps hearing the word and keeps bearing fruit in their life. Faith, repentance over the duration of their entire life and therefore is able to stand when the biggest storm comes and hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into my rest. Rather than the man who hears God's word, and disobeys it, bears bad fruit, walks through the broad gate, down the easy road of life that leads to death and destruction. Even though that man might be super close to the things of God, the kingdom of God, might be hearing these words every single Sunday, yet every single Sunday choosing to disobey those words. That man will hear, away from me, I never knew you, you worker of lawlessness. You see, that's why I started with John Wesley. John Wesley was a super religious guy. 
John Wesley never missed church. John Wesley never missed life group. John Wesley studied his Bible three hours a day. John Wesley knew Greek. So he studied his Greek New Testament for an hour a day and then studied his English Bible three hours a day. John Wesley was part of a group called the Holy Club. But John Wesley at that time was only close to the kingdom of God, but not in the kingdom of God. And as the story goes, it took a storm in John Wesley's life to get his attention to that reality. And I'm praying the same for you this morning, that these verses would be a storm in your life, that they would shake you to the core of your being and cause you to ask the hard questions of life that need to be asked, causing you to choose the road less traveled and to keep choosing the road less traveled because that will make all the difference in the world. So here's my closing question. Is your life grounded on the word of God? Is your life grounded on the word of God? Meaning, are you hearing Jesus' words this morning and recognizing that you need to not just hear those words, you need to do those words. You need to act upon those words and recognize that, that you need to stop listening to the world. You need to stop walking down the broad road that leads to death and destruction. You need to know that the road is out. And you need to start building your life on the solid rock of the Word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm promising you, it's only those who have put their faith in Christ who will stand in the judgment. So I'm appealing to you to hear Jesus' words. Do not let this sanctuary be an amnesia room where you say, amen, hallelujah, that's glorious, and then walk out and forget everything that you heard this morning. Hear his words and act upon them. Do them. Repent, believe, and be saved, grounded on the promises of God, the proclamation of the gospel, and the certainty that Jesus will respond to all those who ask and seek and knock and believe in him. But you've got to choose. There's only two options. There's the narrow road that leads to life, and there's the broad road that leads to death. And I appeal to you. I pray that the choice would be obvious. I choose life. I choose to hear his words and I choose to obey his words. I choose to believe in Jesus. And to you, dear believer, my question is the same. Is your life grounded on the word of God? Meaning, are you hearing Jesus' words and choosing to continue to walk in faithful, ongoing obedience to all that he is saying? Are you doing not just 
talking, but doing all that he has commanded in his word in an ongoing kind of way. I think the soil types in Mark 4 are so helpful on this topic because in soil types 2 and 3, the sower sows the word. Right? So the word of God is going out. The sower sows the word. And the initial response is super positive. And in all the soil types, the soil receives the word and it bears fruit. Soil type two, soil type three, soil type four. They all receive the word initially. And it's positive. They bear fruit initially. What happens in soil types two and three? It doesn't last. Instead, trials and tribulations, persecution and problems come along, choke it out, and it bears no fruit. Or it's the worries of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. They come along, choke it out, and it bears no fruit. It's only the fourth soil type where there's this ongoing fruit in a person's life where they continue to walk the narrow road. They continue to hear God's word. They continue to repent. They continue to believe. They continue to walk in obedience and they continue to bear fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. Not a once and done, but an ongoing all through life until the harvest comes and they're taken home and they hear those glorious words, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let that be true of us, that we would be those who love the word of God, not just hearing it, but obeying it. Let us be those who joyfully receive the word all through life, so that no matter what storms come along, we've built our house on the solid rock of the Lord Jesus so that we might stand in the judgment. And until that day, we may be bearing fruit 30, 60, 100-fold so that our faith may be strong and our souls secure and that God might be glorified in all that we do from this day until that day. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, I pray that you're doing a good work here this morning. That the Spirit of God would use the Word of God to impact the people of God. Lord, I pray for every mind and for every heart that as we hear this good word, this hard word, that we would receive it, that we would believe it, that we would be those who act upon it, that we would delight ourselves in the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, and that we would joyfully walk through the narrow gate and we would walk the hard road, continuing to bear fruit because we're hearing the word of God, we're believing the word of God, and we're acting upon the word of God. We're putting sin to death in our life, and we're walking in righteousness. And I pray that we'd be right there with one another, spurring one another on to love and good deeds so that we might hear at the end of the age, well done, my good and faithful servants. Father, do that good work for our good 
and for your glory we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, go ahead and stand as we sing our closing song this morning. On Jordan's stormy banks I stand. Let's stand and sing together.